Prior to your conference announcements, before we get into this week's episode, Lambda Days will be taking place again on the 9th and 10th of February of 2017. Lambda Days is a -a one-of-a-kind experience in the functional world. The never-failing explosion of enthusiasm and talent is what gets them motivated to explore this amazing community and all of its potential. To Lambda Days, Scala, Erlang, Haskell, Elixir, F-Sharp, Lisp, Clojure, and many other emerging technologies are more than just languages. They are new perspectives on how to understand and tackle challenges of everyday work. Visit www.lambdadays.org to register and keep updated as information becomes available. And if you would like a discount code, email contact at functionalgeekery.com or DM at FNGeekery on Twitter for a code to get 15% off the ticket price. CatsConf 2 will be taking place in Dublin, Ireland on the 18th of February. CatsConf is a single-track, not-for-profit conference with hands-on workshops. With an amazing lineup already announced and the rest of the lineup to be announced soon, it looks to be an exciting conference. Visit catsconf.com, that's K-A-T-S-C-O-N-F dot com, for more information and register. Closure D has been announced and will be taking place in Berlin, Germany on February 25th of 2017. Early bird tickets have sold out, but regular tickets are still available, and you can get a discount when you purchase your tickets for BobConf as well. For more information and to register, visit www.closured.e. And the day before Closure D, on the 24th of February in Berlin, BobConf will be taking place. Bob has a strong focus on functional programming, and Bob is the forum for developers, architects, and builders to explore technologies beyond the mainstream and to discover the best tools available today for building software. With a keynote by John Hughes, their goal is for all participants to leave the conference with new ideas to improve development back at the ranch. For more information about the conference, visit bobconf.de. That's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. Elixir Days is coming up on March 2nd and 3rd in St. Augustine, Florida. Early registration is now open, and the conference includes keynotes by Prag Dave Thomas and Sasha Yurich. Visit www.elixirdays.com. That's Elixir, D-A-Z-E. Dot com to keep updated for information and to register. Destination Code, a new unconference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event March 27th through the 30th of 2017. The unconf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops, worked into the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and an inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. Erlang and Elixir Factory 2017 is on the 23rd and 24th of March. The factory includes a tutorials day on March 25th and training on the 20th through the 22nd and 27th through the 30th of March. To keep updated with information, visit www.erlangfactory.com, SFBay 2017. The FlatMap Oslo call for presentations is now open. FlatMap Oslo is an FP conference with the focus on Scala and the JVM, taking place on May 2nd and 3rd in Oslo, Norway please go to 2017.flatmap.no slash cfp to learn more. And announcements of speakers are being done on Twitter at at flatmaposlo. Elm Europe will be taking place on June 8th and 9th in Paris, France. Evan Sabuki and Richard Feldman will be speaking. The CFP is open until the 15th of January, and they already have 32 awesome proposals submitted, so make sure to get yours in. Early bird tickets are currently available, but there's no telling how long they will last. For more information, to register, and to submit your talk, visit elmeurope.org. 
And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week with us we have Edgar Arotunian. Edgar, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hey, I kind of like to think of myself as a OCaml, iOS, a little bit of JavaScript hacker. I'm just a programmer who's really excited about functional programming and especially about OCaml and all the opportunities that it gives you. And I followed you on Twitter for a while, and then what prompted you was doing a live screen share of doing some OCaml stuff, and that just re-put you back on the radar. And it's been a while since we had some OCaml, and so wanted to get you on to talk about some of the stuff you find about OCaml, why it appeals to you, what you like about it, doing screencasts to share it. And so let's start with first just how did you get into software, and then we'll kind of make that track into getting exposed into OCaml. I think like everybody's life, it ends up being a windy road. And for me, it was especially an unexpected thing. My undergraduate was in philosophy. I studied philosophy, economics, and I did it at a regional state school. I was not even a very good school. And I did that in Florida. I ended up coming to New York and I was looking for a job. I mean, my story is kind of a necessity. And I was looking for jobs, and of course, all the jobs were like for Rails, for Django, or something like that. So I kind of figured myself to be a decently smart person. So I started teaching myself coding. And there's like a whole bunch of stuff, but I mean, long and short of it, after three months, I got my first coding job doing Python development for Bank of America. So I did that for a bit, and around the time that I was trying to look for a job. I also did what other people did in 2012, 13. They applied to grad school. So I ended up getting accepted to grad school for some economics programs, master's in economics. And the funny thing is, is that once I got my job offer at Bank of America, I mean, just the prospect of getting paid was much, much better than continuing noodles for two years. So I actually got accepted to an economics program at Columbia, and I had deferred that for a while when I started working at Bank of America. And after I got enough coding experience at Bank of America, I kind of started to feel like I'm missing out on CS theory. So I wanted to fix that. And being I had this offer from Columbia, I accepted it, and I kind of abused the system a little bit and signed up for CS classes instead. So my first computer science class ever was compilers. And it was a summer course too, so it was accelerated. And at Columbia, they taught compilers with OCaml, which was new to me in a way, but I had always been an adventurous kind of programmer. So earlier, prior to that class, and by this time I already had like a year of experience of coding Python. I had been playing with Haskell and being super interested by it. And so when the lecture came to what is a fold or implementing the fold recursively. By that point, it wasn't anything 
I mean, it was still a new language. So I tried it, but I came a little bit better prepared. And then that had been a summer course, and I hadn't touched O'Campbell after that class. And six months had passed, and I was really wanting a new language. And then I was just thinking, I really don't want to deal with type errors again. They're just frustrating for me. And at the same time, I also don't want to be writing, you know, like object two times on the line or new or any of this crap. And I was looking around it. I mean, it basically gave me like what kind of choices at the time. Ended up being Haskell or O'Camel. So both of them, I mean, I had a little bit of experience with them, but ultimately, I mean, I didn't like some things in Haskell, which I felt were quite easier to do in O'Camel. So I decided to learn OCaml in January. Like, I mean, deeply learn the language. That's when I decided at the end of a, a year, I, was, I wanted a new coding language. So I started working on it in January, just every day. I decided not to continue with Columbia and basically dropped out. So I was just sitting at home coding OCaml for fun and just looking for any kind of opportunity to do anything with it because it's not a very popular language. And I ended up making friends with someone in New York, Ashish, and he runs a pretty cool startup called Solview, and they do their stuff in OCaml. And so I kind of got like an internship kind of job at Solview. And there I wrote my first non-trivial kind of real-world thing. It was like a basic AWS client. And after that professional experience, I've, I don't know how this happened, but I've managed to do OCaml paid, paid OCaml three jobs in a row, which is just... I'm very grateful for that at every moment. That's kind of like uh, the gist of it. So now I just, I mean, I code in many different other languages as well, but it's like always the most fun to code in NoCaml. And then like you can compile it to JavaScript and run it on Node. And I've been enjoying Node a lot lately. So it's just so much fun. (laughs) And you start out with Python. And you said you started looking at Haskell before you got exposure to the OCaml from that compiler's course. What prompted the Haskell thing? Was that just time to look at and see what else is out there? And that was just one of the languages that picked up? Or what was appealing that made you want to pick up Haskell that relatively new into getting into software? Everybody's probably guilty of going on that Wikipedia binge when you click on one link and you click another link and then it ends up being like 10 hours has passed. Learning coding was a whole new world of ideas and jargon and words and just entirely new place. And of course, sooner or later, you hit this idea of functional programming. And of course, I feel like the functional programming space is a bit biased towards certain buzzwords or certain kinds of corners. And that's why I ended up trying Haskell as well. I mean, it's just, for me, even one year into coding, just the, the idea of the type error just felt stupid. You're writing it already. Why can't the computer figure it out? It was just, it was a bothersome idea. So I definitely wanted to do something typed, but everybody was scaring me from C++, which in hindsight was not that, it's not that scary. But everybody was scaring me from C++, and then people were saying I have to do Java. Then I tried to do Java with some algorithms prep, which is just incredibly painful. So yeah, I did give Haskell a pretty good shot. I felt like I ended up being unsatisfied by it, though. And you get into OCaml and you've got that Haskell experience. So you got the little bit of experience of the type system. You tried a couple of these other languages. But if you came in from Python, you kind of mentioned the why do I have to rewrite object 
multiple times or declare what's on, what kind of variable this is, if you can figure this out. What other kind of stuff was appealing to you about the type system as you started to dig into Haskell and then even more so as you started to proceed with OCaml? What was some of that stuff that kind of jumped out? Before even the type system, I by learning OCaml, I actually ended up learning or discovering rather that scoping is just completely broken in Python. It's just the way that scopes work in Python. I used to be a big fan of Python. And then like the in some things ended up not Things that I thought were a good thing have changed into a bad thing. And for example, like the indentation, I think it's a bad thing. It's very, very annoying. And so I had criticisms of that. And then the scoping rules are just wacky. So that kind of stood out as well. And stood out not because I was observant. It's just like the way that I was coding was not working. I would be making mistakes and then I would be bumbling around in the IRC channel asking, why doesn't this work? And then People are like, you don't understand scoping, <laughs> which I didn't actually, because Python is just such a crappy model. But the things about, like, of course, the type system, when you're kind of starting out, you don't fully appreciate all the things that you can do to like really press the edges. But just being able to figure out what the compiler is saying, and it's telling you where the mistake is, that I felt was much, much more useful than stepping through with PDB and then set traces one line at a time. Just incredibly frustrating. So that greatly appealed to me, just like the clarity of the code. I, when I started, I didn't use Merlin. I just I don't think I knew about it at the time. So the compiler warnings was all you really got. But it was all you really needed, especially when you're starting out, you're making these kinds of trivial mistakes. So that really appealed to me. And then like the native code generation appealed and Compiling the JavaScript appealed. I think it's just the programmer appealed to do something wacky and different and weird. As a programmer, you're always interested in something. At least most programmers that I know are interested in some kind of niche idea. Like it's, it's like, I don't know, operating systems or embedded systems or security. I have like an eclectic group of friends in a way. So I wanted to do functional programming. I knew I wanted to. And then you mentioned Merlin. Is that an OCaml tool or was that a Python tool that you didn't discover? I've only seen a little bit of Python for a Raspberry Pi project. And I took the recent intro to functional programming with OCaml MOOC online. So I've had very, very cursory view of that. So you mentioned Merlin and you'd never used that and weren't exposed to that. Where was that fall? Merlin is an OCaml tool, basically like the most important part of any workstation setup for OCaml. And it tells you the type of stuff. You can just highlight over identifiers and it will tell you the type of it. You can highlight a whole block of expressions and it can tell you what the type is. It's just very, very intelligent. Even when the code sample is, you know, maybe it's a broken AST. Merlin still was able to like figure things out. And that gave me a much nicer experience because I do all my work in Emacs. And like, for example, in at the bank, we had our own kind of uh, IDE, and that IDE also couldn't provide, you know, the type system goodies that you get from something that is intelligent. Just to put it in a nutshell, the code completion was really crappy in Python, and I use Company mixed with Jedi, and it's still crappy. But in OCaml, Merlin just does—it's just magic. It just lets you know everything that you want to know. It's really like, I don't know, I just don't use IDEs because Merlin makes my OCaml coding so much more pleasurable. 
And so you make the jump, and again, just very preliminary overview of both Python and OCaml. You mentioned the indentation you started to dislike about the Python aspect, but with the preliminary view of it, how is the indentation in the Python world different than the significant white space indentation that you would have in the OCaml world? And what was the difference that makes you not minded OCaml versus Python that you don't like? Well, OCaml is not white space sensitive. It isn't? No, it's not. Just as a practical example, I had a day job where I had to do Python as well. This was here in San Francisco. Somebody hands you a 100 line function, and you just can't see where the function begins. So you have like, and it, of course, it has like a million width blocks. It's very difficult for me to refactor Python because this white space issue, which should be meaningless, actually has some kind of semantic value. And I don't know where to re-indent a big block of code. And this block of code was all side effect driven too. It had to talk to a database. I had to get some stuff. I had to insert. It had to have failure conditions. So just refactoring that is a nightmare. And okay, so say don't make your function longer than 100 lines or some arbitrary rules. But it's not always like that. You know, you're just given a block of code and I'll make it work. So I like the languages that are not white space sensitive. That kind of aspect of Python became aggravating for me after refactoring. And speaking of refactoring, that's another thing that I loved, absolutely loved about the statically typed languages, both Haskell and and OCaml. Just refactoring, I can't emphasize it enough. Like some programmers don't fully get it, especially the ones who do JavaScript or Python. But you don't fully understand when you have like 1,500 lines of code and you change the signature of a hash table instead of having X type of keys, you change it to Y. And then instantly Merlin tells you all of the places in 1,500, 2,000, 4,000 lines of code where you need to make little adjustments. That's insane. And you could never, ever do that with a PyBase. You couldn't do that with a JavaScript code base. You'd have to have so many tests or you'd have to line by line or you'd have to be an expert in the code. That kind of flexibility is another thing that I was looking for. A really good dev experience, I would say, in refactoring. Because some dev experiences in refactoring are just very, very painful. And they end up with awful merge conflicts later on. And so you find this job where you get to do your first real OCaml program, as you said. When you picked that up, what was the realization of doing a real program, as you called it, versus the play and learning experiences? Were there any things that kind of stood out and jumped out between your playground learning sandboxes and the actual real AWS client that you were doing? You really start to deeply understand the patterns of the language. Like whenever you have to do something non-trivial, something, and when I say non-trivial, I mean like something that somebody would be willing to pay money for. When you do something like that, you start to feel the real idioms and the, and the patterns of a language. And I like OCaml because it lets you go imperative if you want, but it kind of, makes you go out of your way to do that, which many other languages are going in the other direction. They Rather, they're following in the OCaml direction of making things constant by default or forcing you to say cons. But I mean, designing a library, how to architect it, what the entry point should be, how the arguments should be ordered. I mean, just all of these kinds of things. And that ended up pushing me towards learning about the module system or rather actually using it, because the module system is like a second 
coding language inside of OCaml. I mean, it's, it literally is like another language. So all of these like kind of concerns came up. By the end of it, I had an idea to auto-generate the AWS client because they expose it as a JSON file. So I thought about generating it. Thankful, I, I wasn't good enough at that time to do it, but thankfully somebody has already done that. So it's auto-generated and it's type safe and it works. And that's the kind of stuff that I started bumping up against in the real world kind of projects. And failure. Failure conditions are also... Somebody pulls the plug. How do you handle it? Doing, dealing with exceptions. Should I use a result? That's also something you encounter for real-world code, non-trivial code. And you talked about the backend and different generations a couple of times and being able to generate two different compilation targets. What are some of those targets? You mentioned some JavaScript backend. You mentioned, I believe, there's the C or C++ backend, essentially the compiled version of that. What are some of these backends you can actually target in OCaml? We have two ways to generate JavaScript. It has its own bytecode version. There's native code version. Some of the more fun stuff I've done is, because I've done some paid work on iOS, reverse engineering kind of stuff. So I have an unhealthy knowledge of Objective-C. So what I've done for some of that work, you can compile OCaml up against Objective-C, no problem and then create a single binary that I ran on jailbroken phones. So you can compile towards iOS, you can compile towards Android. I mean, it generally works on ARM, as far as I know. Just such a flexibility of backends. I mean, two really, really good backends to JavaScript. How many languages have one decent backend to JavaScript? And we have two, both actively developed with new features. I have a few commits under JS of OCaml myself. So such a flexibility, I really do appreciate. That's kind of like something that I expect now from any new language that I encounter. I'm like, okay, well, what can I compile to? So I think a lot of languages are also following that lead. And I had only heard about the backends preliminary in talking with some of the other guests who have done things like Agda or Koch, which is using... OCaml for some of the proofs that's taking it through to another thing, but I didn't realize that it was that full and that fleshed out for things like JavaScript, where it's essentially a first-class citizen, and much less that you mentioned that there's two backends. So it seems a pretty robust backend generation architecture is there that makes it pretty easy to go in. And if you have your target language, go create something and it's good enough that it's fairly widespread that people use that quite a bit in OCaml? Yeah. As long as you keep your code free of C code and make it pure OCaml, then you can compile it to JS. So I've done bindings to Node, I did bindings to React, to use them as an OCaml library, and that's completely doable. It's pretty fun, too. When you start doing that, also you really start to grok how broken the JavaScript type system is or rather lack of, or how many JavaScript patterns are just utterly insane. <laughs> but, you know, trying to add a type system on top of it is sometimes a little bit awkward. And then just on the JavaScript track, you mentioned in the pre-call that some of the stuff that's interesting you about OCaml is how much some of these patterns are showing up in other languages. And you mentioned JavaScript. I assume a lot of the things like Rust or Swift, which are taking a lot of the functional basics, whether they're 
part OCaml, part Haskell, or whatever mix there is of some of the more ML family languages, what are some of those things that you're seeing being pulled in and taking advantage of more when you go back and visit these other languages? Everybody has optionals now. Java has optionals. C++ 17 has optionals. Basically, everybody has them now. So that's a nice thing. But also, like, let bindings are nice. Pascal doesn't have this one, but I like name parameters a lot. That was one thing that I liked from Python that I wanted my next language to have. So name parameters is nice. I think it's ES7. The do expressions, it's like a regular way of writing OCaml. So that kind of stuff, and especially the async stuff. So like the asynchronous, the promises, and the JS aspect is already quite familiar for anyone who's done LWT or async in OCaml. So there's like a convergence of, uh, in a sense, I think. And it's also being pushed by some things like ReasonML, which ReasonML, this Facebook project, basically changes the syntax at the moment, gives you a different syntax to OCaml. And it does look a lot closer to like ES6 or ES7. I find that to be a good thing as well, because a lot of people are turned off by the syntax. So it's not only features from OCaml that are going to other languages, but you know, there's this influx of other influences coming into the language ecosystem as well. I should unpack that. Like I view OCaml coders as people have been doing it for a bit of time as like older school kind of Unixy programmers. And now we have like this SF kind of Bay Area startup-y, JavaScript-y, doing a whole bunch of Node, also kind of being interested. I like this convergence. I think it's usually good whenever communities kind of interact. Usually something somebody gets something from each other. And it sounds like some of the stuff that you're being able to pull in from the JavaScript community is targeting on the Node side. And you said you've actually run some stuff that you've written OCaml targeted to JavaScript to be able to run it as node libraries, node pieces of software that you're running. What have you found as far as when you pick that kind of target or any target, whether it's node or Android or iOS, and you're doing these backends, is there anything that changes between the way you have to think about these based off the backend that you're doing when you know that you're designing for a different backend and you're writing the OCaml based off the platform you're targeting to? I think that's kind of just the general issue of bindings, not so much limited to OCaml, but take a, let's take any kind of C API. I mean, how do you know if the function failed? Then you get some kind of value, like a negative one or something. Giving back a result code in OCaml like as an integer would be a little bit weird. That's one aspect that you kind of have to be cognizant of that kind of layer of indirection that you're adding on top. And also how much you try to get away with. I mean, in that case, I would have raised an exception. But at the same time, then it's changing kind of like the signature of whatever library you're binding. So like, for example, on the JavaScript side, you know, I could have, this was before promises were as popular as they are now. But I could have taken all of the Node APIs and instead of just doing a binding, I could have added like an LWT layer to it and basically turned it into a promises-based API, which some libraries do. Like you can like promiseify the file system in Node. That's a little bit fragile, at least on the OCaml side, it could be a bit more robust. But at the same time, it's like you're kind of taking liberties 
with the signature of the library. And maybe I'm a bit conservative about this, but I would rather let whoever's using the library build their own abstraction than me make a decision. And this kind of sounds like dogma or like a no-brainer, but this is also hard-fought <laughs> lessons for me because it just ends up being a mess when you try to like impose your own abstractions that later on were not intended or useful, rather. And it sounds like it holds true for some of the core ways that, I guess, the application or virtual machine or whatever part of the system it is, whether depending on if you're targeting iOS, Android, or Node, in the same way that the concurrency primitives may change. You may have the binding for that represents the concurrency, as you mentioned, the promises. And that aspect where is that stuff pretty much something that you do based off the bindings or is that easily migrated just based off the back end of how you think about some other features? I think it would still be at the binding level because to start being at the machine level, I'm trying to think about this, like when would it matter to me? It would only really matter if I was trying to make some kind of C call that cared whether it was on ARM or x86. So sometimes those kind of syscalls do matter, but that was very, very rare. That was like for like one or two experiments with like jailbroken iPhones and no camel. Okay. And then just talking about the interop and the bindings, you've also had a couple posts and you were doing your videos on some of the C, C++ bindings and OCaml, or I guess Objective-C as well, and working with the foreign function interface and calling back and forth in between OCaml and the C-based languages. What was the story there? What does that look like? Uh, well, I mean, it, it's a good way to keep your C skills up. So the OCaml CFFI is rather simple. And sometimes you read some people have like criticisms of the OCaml runtime as something simple. Not a flattering way. Oh, that's simple. That's a good thing. But in kind of like, oh, it's like kind of stupid. It's not that sophisticated. So for the CFFI, I like it because it is a simple FFI. And there's so many good C and C++ libraries out there that it kind of feels like a waste to just, you know, I mean, sometimes it's not worth re-implementing something. It's much easier just to use somebody else's work. Like if I want to use LibSSH or some other SSH protocols, I don't want to re-implement that from scratch. And right now there is no SSH implementation in OCaml. So it's much easier just to call up a library. And so that's how I started, but I really like bindings. I've done many, many bindings. It's kind of formulaic at this point. So there's a pretty good story on if you need to call out to the C libraries and do the interop there. And I believe you were doing something. The one I saw was some graphics processing with OCaml calling out to the C code. And so that story becomes a pretty nice, straightforward story and not a lot of crazy headaches. Well, I mean, the crazy headaches are when you have to debug. That's a little bit painful. Because now you're dealing with like two heaps. You're having to deal with like double the trouble. I think the most exciting binding that I've done, the most interesting one has been to JavaScript core. And so if any of the people listening have done any kind of Objective-C coding, there's this really neat feature on iOS and Objective-C where you can take an Objective-C object and then it magically works on the JavaScript side, which is really amazing. So I wanted that kind of ability as well. For example, 
the core JavaScript language itself doesn't have a notion of a file. It has no way to read anything from the file system. And that's why, you know, Node provides its core libraries. So in this little example that I did with JavaScript core, I made a JavaScript objects implementation be at the OCaml level and exposed it using the regular kind of APIs that they have. They basically have like this thing that needs a whole bunch of function pointers and you provide it. And like the callback constructor, the called an object as a function callback, things like that. So being able to bridge, and this way you kind of have to like go through three different languages from the JavaScript side and the C++ side, because JavaScript core gives a C API, but a lot of the stuff that you need to make it work nicely is at the C++ level. And then OCaml itself. So like going through this three levels, that's also not for free because there's also like this mental overhead of playing nicely with the garbage collector and all these minutia and different rules, but it's completely doable. And honestly, I should also mention that in many cases, you don't even have to write any kind of C code because we have this package called C-types. And with C-types, you only talk OCaml and it gives you an ability to call C code. That sounds pretty nice as far as if it's just a basic call out to some of those C libraries. If you actually have that C-types library, that makes it straightforward to use. Yeah, and I started to do that with libgit too. So with libgit2, I wanted to expose that library, that C library, to OCaml. And I did that with C-types. And C-types is a lot more mature now. It's much more robust. And as we're dancing around and talking about some of this C or C++ libraries and JavaScript and some of the other stuff that you're going back and forth with, and your basic background with Python starting out, What is the difference in your mind when you have to go back to some of these more dynamic type systems and then the type systems that may be considered weaker compared to the OCaml type system? Is there a way that it changes or that you think about interacting between the two? And when you call out that if you're consuming it, as you mentioned, the error codes on C might return a negative one. What are those boundaries and how you think about the different levels of types and how they play back and forth with each other when you go back and approach something that's more dynamic? To be honest, I sometimes just jettison it all together. I mean, it's kind of like you might as well do it the way the majority does it in that language. Like C idioms don't make sense in OCaml. Haskell idioms don't make sense in C. It would end up being very unpythonic code or very weird looking JavaScript. And it wouldn't play nicely with libraries, or rather not even libraries, just like other developers. For example, if I have to do any kind of web dev, it's JavaScript on the front end and back end. I'm totally fine with that. And JavaScript is a great language for that. I mean, but if you tried to like model what you would do in another language, I find that it often, it doesn't really work out that well. And some of that is just more, does your way of thinking and approaching and maybe documenting as comments as I've seen some people do where it may still be dynamic, but you're got to more focus on what parts of that dynamic factor you need. So if you're doing a JSON object or a JSON hash that you expect these keys to be in there, are you thinking more about the contract in that sense coming from that dynamic world? Or is there any other lessons that you're thinking about when you're working on a dynamic language that You're still working in the idioms of JavaScript or C or whatever the language is, but when you're approaching the problem, has any of the OCaml lessons 
influence the way you go about tackling some of that stuff? Not so much on that. Coding in Haskell and in OCaml has helped me think about the ways my code can fail or am I checking all the cases? That I do I do see that happening in all my other coding in C and in, and in JavaScript. I'm always thinking, how is this going to possibly fail and what am I going to do? That definitely has influenced. But I mean, the other things that you I want, I mean, the languages just make it painful or inconvenient or a hassle. Like I was doing tagged unions in C. It's just a hassle. The language doesn't make it easy. And, you know, humans always pick the path of least resistant. I'm not any different. And in Python, they don't help. And, and JavaScript, they don't help. It's difficult. I mean, some things kind of make it easier. Like I can add a layer of flow. I can add flow on top of my JavaScript and then kind of have things that look like OCaml records or many parts do look like OCaml. But it's, I'm not knocking flow, but I don't. I end up not using any of those tools. I like very little added things on top of my working environment or my build. I just want JavaScript and Emacs, if that makes sense. It does. And I think one of the things I was thinking about was, as you mentioned, thinking about those failure cases and making sure that you think about that up front when you might normally be writing it off. And it was those kinds of lessons that made sense and finding that balance as you kind of outlined. It definitely is a balance. It is a balance because like sometimes it just becomes obnoxious, especially if it has something to do with like side effects or imperative features. Sometimes too much of that kind of safety just gets a little bit in the way. You know, when you're prototyping something, it's great. It's great to prototype something in JavaScript or Python. It's just so fast to get something out the door. And then I want to make sure we touched on a little bit. You mentioned you played a little bit with Haskell. Have you gone back and done some Haskell? Because you mentioned that there are some things you don't like about Haskell as much compared to OCaml. So I was hoping to get a little bit of a contrast between what experience you have playing with Haskell and learning Haskell compared to your experience in OCaml and because they're similar, but they're different enough. And what are some of those differences that you like about OCaml that makes you choose OCaml over Haskell? The difference is I didn't agree with lazy by default. It was difficult for me to think about. I didn't agree with how terse production Haskell ended up looking like. It's difficult for me to... And there are code completion things in Haskell as well and things that tell you the type, which is like very obnoxious of like single symbol functions that create type signatures that are difficult for me to understand. So that was my weakness, but I'm just giving the reasons why I didn't continue with it. IO monad stuff was annoying for me. At that time, I was not a very experienced programmer. I think I was under a year. And just talking about monads when I'm just trying to print something to the screen, it was difficult. It takes up a lot of like mental space that you uh, like you reserve some amount of like mental strength for whatever new task you have to learn, and then you blow so much of that set aside space for just like the tooling or to get something running or printing to the screen. So I didn't like that, and just some cultures you like and some you don't agree with. And I found I like the OCaml IRC channel much more than I did the Haskell channel. It's not knocking on anybody there. I didn't have that kind of same background, I guess. I didn't have that shared understanding. 
And the reason I was asking was I know some people have come in and said, hey, Haskell, Haskell's what you need to learn. Think about types. Think about, again, the IO monads and everything else and the purity. And some of this was what you found. And I know there's a strong but still niche OCaml community as well, which seems something like a viable option for those who aren't necessarily feeling the Haskell after they tried looking at it and getting some of those selling points of what attracted you to OCaml that might attract others to OCaml if Haskell doesn't fit with them. Oh, actually, Proctor, I just remembered you asked and I didn't answer it. When was the last time I tried it? If I had tried Haskell, I did. My blog is a Hackle project. So I needed to make a RSS feed that only included programming-related things because there's a few blog posts that are not related to coding and I don't want to pollute other people's RSS feeds. So for this, I had to change the code because I'm using a forked project of someone else's that I liked. Using the project is quite easy. It's just making markdown files. So I tried to get into it and I couldn't figure out where I could add the relevant code because it was a code was a little bit difficult for me to understand. And the funny part was is that I deleted the binary and then just did cabal install. Okay, yeah, I'm not supposed to use cabal. I'm supposed to use stack, whatever. But I just did cabal install and it installed the binary, which just did not work. Just did not work at all. Like it had a side fault or it crashed, I remember, but it did not work. And then I came into the IRC channel for Haskell then like the thing that was asked of me was like, well, if everything was working, why did you delete the library and recompile the binary? And to me, that's kind of a weird, like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just trying to use the source code. Why is it bad? I should be able to recompile the code and it should work. And to add insult to injury, recompiling it because it was a Haskell project, it took literally 20 minutes on my eight core laptop, a fairly new MacBook. So just figuring out what the mistake is takes 20 minutes. And I guess that's a problem of infrastructure and I should have used, I don't know, XYZ tool. But that was the last time I tried to get into Haskell. That was a few months ago. I tried to give it a shot again, but just I can't even compile my code. And again, that's probably my failure, but that was very discouraging for me. I think the longest I've ever had any professional OCaml code base compile was two and a half minutes which was a substantial project. And we've given and talked about a lot of the stuff, and I think we've talked about some of the stuff that excites you, the multiple backends for generation, some of the type in the redundancy and refactoring side. But if you were going to give someone the pitch for why OCaml and what's there for someone who's thinking about picking up a new language, what would you say in your experience working with OCaml and actually considering yourself lucky to have three jobs in a row where you do OCaml? What is it about OCaml after you've been able to do it professionally as well that you would sell someone on as OCaml? Since you're trying to go out there, you like talking about OCaml. It excites you. What do you say to those people to get them interested in looking at OCaml as well? I think people should try to have fun in whatever it is that they do. They should gravitate towards that. And as programmers, we are very, very fortunate. We have great, great skills, and they're skills that pay. I mean, I just came back from a poorer country. And sometimes you have skills that nobody wants to pay for. That's not with coding. So we have really awesome skills. You should be doing what makes you feel good. 
what makes you feel happy. And as a programmer, you spend so much time coding in some language. You might as well do it in a language that is a joy to work in, is a joy to speak in. I never felt any kind of happiness when I was coding Java or if I did some little adventure in C Sharp. That's not to knock languages that I don't use. And I'm also not happy coding in C. When I code in OCaml, it's just, I know that there's no stupid errors. I know that it's plenty fast. And it just, it looks good to me. It's just, it's pleasing to do a recursion with pattern matching directly on the list. And then, you know, it's just very, very pleasing to look at for me. And maybe some people, they don't, you'll have reason to mail for that. But that's why I really encourage programmers to have happiness in whatever they do. And I really think that if you give OCaml the benefit of the doubt and you try it for one week, you'll just have like a mental nirvana for some period, like moments when you get something exciting. It really feels good. (laughs) And if you encourage someone to go try it for a week, is there any good things that you would say, if you're going to go try this, here's a couple of the things or references for things to make sure that they get off and get going on the right foot? I've heard of things like OTOP and some of these others. Is there any things that they should make sure that they follow or any particular getting started guides or references or tutorials out there that make sure they have that best experience coming in that they should look at? Well, they should definitely have Merlin installed because it's one of the more pleasurable experiences as well. But I mean, the usual resources that you should have whenever you start a new language, you should have uh, the Stack Overflow page open. Read through older answers that have many, many vote ups. Read those answers. And the Reddit for OCaml is pretty good as well. But it's not just that. I mean, you should say hello to the IRC channel. Like, come in and start to get to know people. I've gotten so much, just priceless amounts of help just by knowing some people in the IRC channel. I really recommend that because coding, it's not, it's, It's a language, right? And you have to talk to other people in that language. And when you reach out to them in that community, whatever community it is, it greatly, greatly benefits you. You start understanding the idioms. You start understanding when it's just easier to use a ref or recursion or what what are open types and all of these things. So definitely make yourself known in the IRC channel. Make sure you have Merlin installed. Make sure that OPAM is working correctly, check OPAM switch. That's something that comes up often. But yeah, I think if you just set yourself up for success, the only thing limiting would be any kind of work needed to do it. And don't forget the OCaml.org page has many, many good tutorials. There's not as many bloggers in the OCaml sphere like there are in JavaScript world. Like Everybody has written an article about you know my first JSX. But there's not that much blog literature for OCaml, unfortunately. A shameless plug, I try to uh, blog about it often. So at least the tutorials are still up to date and still good for people to go reference that living out there on the OCaml site. Because I know sometimes you can go find, I think there's real world OCaml and a couple of other books, but I wasn't sure how well some of those things also stayed up to date and are still relevant. So real world Haskell, in my opinion, has not aged gracefully. I mean, it's been out for a while now. It hasn't aged that well. Some of the code samples are not copy-pastable. The same thing is true for real-world OCaml. There are many places which use the old Camel P4 syntax extension, but most of the tutorials should work. You know, This is one of the downsides of open source, that 
sometimes not all the links point out the right place and sometimes not all the tutorials are up to date. But they should be fairly, fairly decent. And again, if you don't have an understanding, then come to the IRC chat room and, and ask somebody who would probably be very happy to, to tell you the answer and then probably fix the website mistake. And as we're nearing the end of our time, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to at least raise people's attention to about OCaml or anything else in that ecosystem that you want to put on people's radars so they know about it if they're curious? The language has so many huge things coming up. There's OCaml's use in Docker and OCaml multi-core coming out and then algebraic effects which I've seen JavaScript try to emulate, I think I read in some TC39 committee documents, and ReasonML coming, well, already here, rather, and developing quite nicely. There's this amazing convergence of awesome things coming to OCaml and some performance benefits that are already have landed, like F-Lambda. So there's so many awesome things coming to this language. This is a great time to get in it and get like the core language experience because you're going to be wanting to build serious things in this language. And I do think it is a language that gives you a competitive advantage. So you definitely want to take advantage, like get ready now, because the features that come out are really, really nice features that I think are going to persuade a lot of people to use OCaml as their next language. And that puts a number of things on my radar, just about being the outsider, kind of watching the various communities that were even... Coming down, I had heard of ReasonML, but the multi-core for OCaml is new and a couple of those other things you mentioned. So those sound like good resources just to keep an eye on and see when they land and to know what's coming in the future for OCaml. Yeah, I mean, I'm very, very excited. I know many people in the community are as well, but I'm very, very excited about multi-core event. I mean, there's no date as far as I understand, but... I am pretty confident that it will come out. Oh, and, and there's another feature, this modular implicit feature coming out, which will make some things that were a little bit of a hassle also easier to work with now. So, so many cool features. The community is filled with, it's not a large community, but there's a very good density of knowledge. Like the average OCamelware has some kind of academic understanding of type systems or really knows Unix coding. It's just much higher average level of, of programmer, I feel like. It's not a knock on other communities. It's just my own kind of intuition on the matter. And then you're writing, you're blogging, you're doing some live courses. What are the best ways for people to keep up to date and keep an eye on with what you're sharing in the OCaml community and doing your part to evangelize OCaml to the world? I don't know. I'm kind of convinced that Twitter was really just made for programmers or developers because it's just the best medium. So many cool ideas have come out just through Twitter interactions. So I tweet a lot. Sometimes it's about coding. I recently came back from an overseas trip. but So you can catch me on Twitter and on the blog. And for just general OCaml news, I, you, people can sign up for the mailing list. It's like a traditional mailing list. And then just stop by in the IRC chat room as well. So for my thing, you can catch me on Twitter and and the website. And I'll get links to your Twitter account, your website as well on the show notes. And then what was the mailing list for those interested? 
it's the OCaml mailing list that comes out. It's like a traditional Unixy kind of mailing list. You can find it on OCaml.org. Okay, and I know mailing list has gotten overloaded in the recent years with the things like the the weekly newsletters and the like. So this is the real old. Oh, this is a plain text. <laughs> yeah, where everybody has a question, and then it's just that mailing list to questions and answers versus one of those weekly update kind of mailing lists. It's a little bit of both. There's like updates and there's also questions. It's really useful to ask any kind of questions because anybody who's anybody in that community reads that mailing list. So it's a great opportunity to ask if you, especially if you have some kind of like corner case question, that's a little bit awkward to ask on stack. That's also a good place. It serves as great documentation as well. Very good way to pick up the language if you're trying to do it in a hurry. And that sounds like another good resource on top of the ones you've already mentioned for people who want to spend that week or two getting in and getting familiar with OCaml and seeing what it's about. Yeah, most definitely. And so we mentioned your blog, we mentioned Twitter. Was there anywhere else that people can find you online and follow you? I guess on GitHub as well. On GitHub, you can see all my projects and things I'm working on. Or I try to make it a place where there's like a lot of example code. And there's also a whole bunch of repos that I fork that I just use as like a bookmark list. Because GitHub lets you fork as much as you want. So uh, yeah, basically those three avenues, the blog, the Twitter, and GitHub itself. Okay, and I'll make sure to get the GitHub in as well so people can find examples of OCaml code since you got some up there. Oh, and I guess YouTube now as well because of these live streams. Sounds good. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Pelcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Edgar, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. You gave me some more deeper insights into OCaml. As I mentioned earlier in the conversation, I only had a preliminary view of it. And I don't know how well of my OCaml was, knowing I have functional background, but I don't know how OCaml-ish it is versus just taking some of those things. So you gave me a good overview of some of the stuff that OCaml gives and is capable of doing besides just looking at the syntax and type system and the like a little bit. So thanks for taking the time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Patrick. I had a good time. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.